Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. three of our renewal and rebirth theme, which admittedly has been pretty significantly focused on New Year's celebrations. First, we looked at the ancient world, including Babylon, Greece, Rome, and Egypt. Then last week, we looked at the Chinese New Year as well as Taoism. We've also identified the presence of the Phoenix in parts of the ancient world and Fang Huang, which has been referred to in the Western world as the Chinese Phoenix. Now we're going to turn our attention to India, which has a wealth of celebrations and traditions based on religion, as well as the various regions and states. One thing bringing out these differences is the calendar. Both the lunar and solar calendars are presently in use. Of the 25 New Year's festivals, or festivals relating to New Year's that I found, 11 of these use the lunar calendar and 24 use the solar calendar. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into all of these festivals. That would take way more time than we have today. In addition to the differences between the lunar and solar calendars, the days of the New Year celebrations vary within the calendars themselves. All of the lunar calendar dates vary based on the nature of the calendar, which we've seen numerous times. But they also vary within the calendar itself, in this case March and April being the most common, but other dates including February and March, June and July, October and November, and two that vary within December, along with one that varies within February. So they're pretty spread out. The solar calendar dates are almost all fixed, mostly in April, and spanning several days. Only one takes place on a single fixed day, though not necessarily the same date, and we're going to mention that one today. So there's a lot to explore here, and to get started, we're going to look at a festival with ancient roots. This festival is called Nauru's, also known as the Persian New Year. Nowruz is celebrated today in Iran, Afghanistan, and many other areas. It's also celebrated in some parts of India, mainly by Iranis who migrated to British India in the late 20th century, and the Parsis who migrated from Persia during the Muslim conquest in 636 to 651 CE. Both of these groups are Zoroastrians, but are still distinct from one another. Their other primary group involved are Indian Muslims. So you can already see how Nauru's came to be established in India, but the roots go much farther back. As with many things dating back to antiquity, it's hard to nail down exactly how old it is. We have detailed records from the Sasanian Empire, which lasted from 224 to 651 CE, but we know it's definitely much older than that. Most historians believe that the festival dates back to at least the 6th century BCE and survived the conquest of the Achaemenid Empire by Alexander the Great in 333 BCE. This was in Persia, which is the region we know as Iran today. Few Persian festivals survived Alexander's conquest, and Nauru's is one of them, making it that much more significant. 
Prior to that, the Athenian mercenary and historian Xenophon provides an account of a Nauru's festival in Persepolis and continuing into the Achaemenid Empire, though the name Nauru's itself does not appear in any Achaemenid writings. Not surprisingly, Iranian mythology provides some founding myths about Nauru's. Of particular note is the epic poem Shahnameh, which is translated from Persia as the Book of Kings. Shahnameh was written by a Persian poet named Ferdowsi sometime between 977 and 1010 CE. This is one of the longest epic poems in the world and covers primarily a mythical past of the Persian Empire, though with some historical past included as well. Ferdowsi's work spans from the creation of the world through the 7th century Muslim conquest of Persia. Not only regarded as a literary masterpiece, it is the national epic of Greater Iran. As far as Nauruz is concerned, the Shahnameh attributes it to the mythical Iranian king Jamshid. He was the fourth of eleven kings of the legendary Pishtadian dynasty and is described as the greatest. Among his legendary accomplishments is the establishment of a golden age. He fought evil demons, making them his servants and establishing himself as ruler of earth, all except the heavens. Though in the process of these battles, life on earth was devastated. Trees died, losing their leaves as the earth became a dark and barren place. In his bid to reach the heavens, Jamshid crafted a throne covered in jewels and commanded the demons to lift him up to the sky. As he did so, the jewels caught the sun's rays and the sky was illuminated with all the colors of the world. When these rays hit the dead trees and plants, they were revived, becoming lush and green once more. As Jamshid continued to rise, all the life that had been destroyed began to return to earth. Symbolically, he appears to be rising like the sun. In celebration of this new day, the festival Nauruz was born. I want to point out now that Nauruz, when translated from the Persian, means new day, as Jamshid rose and brought a new day to the earth. As I was reading up on this, I picked up some ideas that we've seen before, namely that this myth seems to be focusing on the transition from winter to spring with Nauru's taking place on the vernal equinox, the beginning of spring, a time when plants seem to return to life, animals emerge from their hibernation or begin migration, and the days themselves are getting longer. These New Year celebrations coming at the beginning of spring just keep showing up, and when you think about it, that really does make a lot of sense. It's a time when the planting season begins, when other plants grow, new blooms form, and hibernating animals emerge from their hibernations. The vernal equinox is one of two times a year when day and night are equal. For these societies that live and work around nature's patterns, before all the advancements that made life what we know it today, it feels only natural to celebrate the new year at this point in time. Now that we've traced Nauru's back, let's start moving forward again starting with Xenophon's account of the festival in Persepolis during the time of the Achaemenid Empire. Remember that puts us between 550 and 330 BCE. Though the name Nauru's itself doesn't appear, the day was still a very important one. On this day there was a, a certain acknowledgement of the king of kings by the kings of various nations within the empire. You could think of this title as similar to an emperor in that it outranks a regular king. 
a ruler above all others, to whom all other kings are theoretically subject, though the system does have its problems. With their own kings, some areas became autonomous on their own, while others attempted to rebel. Pretty much what you'd expect from a system that tells kings that they are under the rule of a ruler with even greater prestige. Rulers just tend to not like being ruled. On Nauru's, these kings would bring gifts to the king of kings in Persepolis. So important was this ritual that even legitimacy of rulership for the kings could have been withheld until their first participation. In Persepolis, the palace of Apadana is thought to have, at least in part, been dedicated to the king of kings receiving these gifts. Apadana itself is part of the oldest building phase in Persepolis, constructed sometime during the first half of the 6th century BCE during the time of Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, and into the time of Xerxes I. Some ruins of it do still remain today. Moving a bit into the Arsacid empires of 248 BCE to 224 CE, we find some specific references to Nauru's, namely during the rule of Vologases I from 51 to 78 CE. Unfortunately, while the celebration is specifically referenced by name, no details are included with it. Still, it's one way that we know Nauru's did in fact survive the conquest of Alexander the Great. More detailed records are found within the Sassanid Empire, which emerged next and continued through 651 CE. And these records appear during the time of the empire's founder, Ardashir I. For the Sassanids, Nauru's was the single most important day of the year. Several enduring customs were established during this time. Among them were royal audiences with the public, cash gifts, and pardoning of prisoners. Not the first time we've encountered those particular traditions on holidays of great importance. Now we get to the point where Nauru's makes the journey to India. The Muslim conquest of Persia occurred from 636 to 651 CE. Naturally, this had a pretty profound effect on the region not the least of which was the decline of Zoroastrianism. Nauru survived the decline and became largely a secular holiday spanning various faiths, but with its roots in the religion, Nauru's remains a holy day for those who still practice Zoroastrianism. So this is where we start seeing changes to Nauru's, but at the same time continuity. The Zoroastrian faith is still around, making it one of the oldest religions in the world, but at the same time, Nauru's has spread beyond it. In western India, we find the Parsi Zoroastrians who fled the Muslim conquest. When they arrived, they of course brought their beliefs and traditions with them. We have only one account of this time period, the story of Sanjan, which is dated to 1599 CE, over 900 years after the Muslim conquest took place. In addition, it has led to three possible landing dates for the Parsi, 716, 765, and 936, all of which are still at least 600 years prior to the writing of the story of Sanjan. So we have to keep in mind this time difference between when the source was written and when the events happen as we analyze what it has to tell us. Upon arrival on the Indian subcontinent, the Parsi encountered a local ruler named Jadi Rana who allowed them to remain if they agreed to two conditions. 
The first was that they learn Gujarati, the local language. The second was that the women adopt the local customs in regard to clothing and wear the sari. They agreed and founded the Sanjan settlement. It's important to note here that neither condition involved their religion or their holidays, allowing for the continued practice of Zoroastrianism and thus the continuation of Nauru's. Over the following centuries, the Parsi became established in the region and moved beyond, with Zoroastrianism present yet struggling to become more firmly established. The difficulties faced in Gujarat were resolved when the area was divided into five panthaks, or districts. And this took place in 1290, with each under the jurisdiction of a single priestly family as well as their descendants. In the 13th through 16th centuries, these priests sent 22 total requests to the Iranian Zoroastrians. We believe they did so because they saw the Iranian Zoroastrians as more informed and having better preserved the old traditions. These communications, called Rivagats, have since been compiled into a text of great importance in the Zoroastrian faith. They deal not only with religious topics, but social ones as well. We, we get a look into the concerns of these priests seeking guidance. Things like a fear of assimilation into local culture, for example, or the loss of their own identities. Concerns which they believe the Iranian Zoroastrians could help them with. And there was good cause for these concerns. Dynasties in India rose and fell, and the British Empire appeared later, too. The Kutba Shahi dynasty existed in South India from 1518 to 1687 CE and was a Muslim sultanate. With the Parsi having originally arrived in India after fleeing the Muslim conquests of Persia, you can imagine why they'd be worried. Nowruz was celebrated in this dynasty, including a ritual called Panjeri and an overall feeling of grandeur, which we know from a Bengali poet named Kazi Nazarul Islam. The Mughal Empire eventually put an end to the Kutbi Shahi dynasty when Emperor Aurangzeb conquered Deccan in 1687. Though they practiced Sunni Islam, they did not actively aim to suppress the cultures they conquered. Instead, they established rulership and administrative practices to create a centralized rule. In this rule, again, Nauru's was still celebrated. A notable example being the princely state of Hyderabad in Deccan. It existed from 1724 to 1948 CE when it was divided into three new regions. The Hyderabad-Karnataka region within Karnataka, Marathwada region in Maharashtra, and the state of Telangana. In Hyderabad, Nauru's was one of four major holidays, alongside two official Islamic holidays and the current sovereign's birthday, in which the Nizam ul-Mulk held a public darbar. The Nizam al-Mulk was a term used for the king of the princely state of Hyderabad. Darbar, a term derived from the Persian language, refers to the official meetings of the noble court and where kings would discuss state affairs. For those four holidays, the Darbar was held publicly, following in that idea that rulers be more open to their subjects on significant days. So Nauru's was given a pretty prominent position. At the same time, this isn't the Zoroastrian celebration the Parsi and Iranians brought to India. Not entirely. Parsi and Iranian Zoroastrians are still celebrating, 
but it's also taking on a secular element among these dynasties and empires. More and more, you can see why there were anxieties expressed in the Rivagats. I want to go ahead and move on to what the celebration is now, but there's one more thing to note regarding the Parsi celebrations. The Parsi communities use a Zoroastrian calendar, of which there are several. The one used by these communities in India is called the Shahanshahi calendar, described in the Zoroastrian text Denkard, composed in the 9th century CE. Because they only had one intercalation in the history of the calendar, the date of Nauruz has moved quite far from the vernal equinox, now landing sometime in mid-August for those communities still using that calendar. An interesting change, given the historical and mythological origins. And it does mean that, among communities using this calendar, Nauruz isn't fixed on the day of the vernal equinox as it is elsewhere. So that's how Nauruz arrived in India and what it had to survive to make it to today. Those Zoroastrian communities are still around and still celebrate, but of course there's a secular celebration that arose as well. So how is Nauruz celebrated? Well, I think we've already noted that monarchs having banquets, giving gifts, and having audiences was common. Family and friends exchanged gifts and had feasts of their own. In direct relation to the return of spring and the idea of rebirth, they actually dyed eggs and then sprinkled water over them. I found that one particularly interesting. And it seems to be an enduring tradition. Dying eggs apparently isn't just for Easter. Another enduring tradition is gathering around bonfires. Another interesting tradition is the haft sin. For this tradition, seven symbolic items are arranged on a table, each starting with the 15th letter of the Persian alphabet, sin. The term haft is Persian for seven. Of course, the Romanized words sound different, but these are the primary seven items. Sabze, meaning wheat or barley. Samanu, a sweet pudding made from wheat germ. Senjed, a Persian olive. Serke, vinegar. Seeb, apple. Seer, garlic. And somak, meaning sumac. Those dyed eggs might also feature here, along with a mirror, goldfish, candles, and others. You also typically find a book of wisdom on the table. This could be the Zoroastrian Shaname we mentioned earlier, or the Zoroastrian text Avesta. It could also be the Bible or the Quran. Such is the nature of Nauru's today. It's not just Zoroastrian, though in some places it certainly still is. People also engage in what you might call spring cleaning, usually before Nauru's so that the new year can begin with an already clean home. People often buy flowers, primarily hyacinths and tulips. They also buy new clothes for the new year. Beyond India, there are other traditions as well, including the Haftamewa, a mixture of seven dried fruits and nuts, Koncha, a silver copper tray with another tray of sprouting wheat in the middle and a dyed egg for each family member. Kamparak, who is an old bearded man in lore wearing colorful clothes, a rosary, and wielding the power of winter, he travels from village to village distributing charities. Then there's Amu Naruz, a counterpart to Santa Claus who brings children gifts. He's married to Nane Sarma and can only see her just once a year. 
He is accompanied by Haji Fruz. He's covered in soot and wearing bright red clothes. He dances and sings while playing a tambourine, and to cheer people up, he calls them lords and himself a serf. And that's Nauru's, where it came from, how it came to India with the Parsi, and how it changed and survived through to today. It's had a complicated journey and is branched in a variety of ways, both within Zoroastrian religion and outside it, and it's built around a new year centered on the vernal equinox, directly linking it to the idea of renewal and rebirth that comes with spring. Another festival I want to mention is Holi, an ancient Hindu celebration that originated within India. It has spread to some other areas as people move to other parts of the world, but is primarily celebrated in northern India. It's known by various names, including the Festival of Spring, Festival of Colors, and Festival of Love. It isn't necessarily a New Year celebration by definition, but for many it is the start of the New Year. The day is determined by the Hindu calendar. It begins during the night of the Purnima, which is the last day of the full moon during the month of Falguna. In our Gregorian calendar, this is sometime in March. Last year it was the 10th, this year it's the 29th. Just to be clear, that means that this year the 29th is holy, but the festival itself begins the night of the 28th. The day is dedicated to bettering yourself in certain ways in preparation for the coming year. Coming together with others to forget and forgive is one way. Those who owe debts may pay them on this day, while those holding said debts may choose to forgive them. And there's a general idea of moving beyond past mistakes, letting them go so you can begin anew in the new year. As far as legends go, we have a few. One is of the Hindu deity Krishna, 8th avatar of Vishnu, one of the principal deities in Hinduism. Krishna grew up in the Braj region of India in the north, more specifically the city of Mathura. As a baby, Krishna was poisoned by a she-demon named Putana using her breast milk. As a result, his skin turned dark blue. When he was older, he noticed the goddess Radha, but feared that this fair-skinned beauty would not like him because of his darker skin. To stop his complaints, Krishna's mother told him to either smear colored powder on Radha's face or have her do so to him. Whichever it was, they fell in love and the face coloring became commemorated in Holi, with face coloring becoming part of the traditions. Another legend involves Vishnu and relates to the idea of good triumphing over evil. This focuses on King Hiranyakashipu and his son Pralada. Hiranyakashipu was king of the demonic Asuras and had five boons that prevented him from being killed. Neither human nor animal, neither indoors nor outdoors, neither day nor night, neither by projectile nor handheld weapons, neither on land, nor in water, nor in the air. With these boons, he believed himself God and demanded that absolutely everyone worship him and him alone. His son Pralada, however, was devoted to Vishnu and refused to bow to his father's demands no matter what torture he suffered. Eventually, his evil aunt Holika got involved. She tricked him into sitting on a pyre with her, and her plan was to wear a special cloak that protected her from the flames while Pralada burned. 
but she apparently didn't hold on to the cloak, and while the fire was burning, it was blown from her to Pralada, and she ended up being the one who was burned. Then Vishnu appeared to defeat Hiranyakashipu. First, he appeared as an avatar in the form of a half-human and half-man, negating the first boon. He confronted Hiranyakashipu at a doorstep, negating the second. He timed his confrontation at dusk, negating the third, placed him on his lap, negating the fifth, and finally used his lion claws to kill him, negating the fourth boon. So Vishnu triumphed over evil by finding a way to get around the five boons preventing Hiranyakashipu's death, which involved finding that middle ground that wasn't addressed. And so the idea of good triumphing over evil became a part of holy. Part of the celebration is a holika bonfire, symbolic of the victory and the burning of the evil holika. Another legend involves the god of love, Kamadeva, and varies depending on location, especially in southern India. Others exist outside non-Hindus who also celebrate, and again, these have variations. As an ancient festival, mentions of holy are found in various places. It's mentioned in the Puranas, a vast collection of Indian literature covering various topics. It's also mentioned by the poet Kalidasa, who lived in the 4th century CE during the reign of Chandragupta II. There's also mention in a Sanskrit drama titled Ratnavali, written by Indian Emperor Harsha. When European traders arrived in the 1600s, the celebration caught their attention as well. It even became a part of the Oxford English Dictionary, though it went through five or six spelling changes before arriving at the correct one in 1910. So you see, that's a big celebration with several legends and an enduring presence that caught attention far beyond India. And unlike Nauru's, it didn't face the challenges like the Muslim conquest of Persia. Even in the United States, you'll find celebrations in some areas. Usually, you'll find them being hosted in temples. Other times, you might find them in cultural halls. So, they're smaller gatherings, but they're still found in many states. As with all celebrations, there are common rituals and traditions that exist in some form across most variations, if not all of them. I've already mentioned bonfires in relation to the legend involving Vishnu. More specifically, this ritual is called Holika Dahan. Holika not only lends her name to this tradition, but the festival itself as holy is derived from her name. The pyre is built and burned the night before holy. At the top of this fire is an effigy of Holika. The exact nature of this bonfire has changed a little bit over time. In the past, people would approach the fire to contribute a log in keeping with the symbolism of Holika being burned. As the fire burned, people danced and sang around it. They also performed the parikrama of fire. This is a ritual in which people move along a path outside something, in this case the pyre. The goal is to absorb the energy as they move along the path, and in the Hindu religion, this is usually performed in a clockwise motion. Both the dancing and the parikrama are still part of celebrations today, though the individual bringing of logs seems to have disappeared or at least isn't practiced in some regions. There's also the use of colors, in keeping with the Krishna legend. 
young people gather a variety of means to color people that they target. There's the dry colors, like powders, that you would traditionally think of. But along with modern times came new ways. Water guns and water balloons filled with colored water are common now. Really, it seems that you're only limited by your creativity when it comes to this tradition, and there's no limit to the colors that are used. In the past, the materials chosen were derived from plants and washable, so they didn't permanently stain clothes. Turmeric, for example. Now, of course, things have changed, and people have access to more commercially made pigments. The form of color used does depend on where you are. In public places like parks, anything goes. In homes, only powder is used to directly smear on someone's face. This all takes place in the morning after the holika has burned out, so that by sunrise, everyone has been colored by one form or another, which is why one of the names for holy is Festival of Colors. Along with the colors, there's more singing and dancing. Traditional foods and cold drinks are served to the celebrants, and later in the day, color play ends and people return home to clean up, get sober if they need to, and put on nice clothes for the evening. They then go out to be with friends and relatives, exchanging traditional sweets as they go. This might also be the time to visit people and offer forgiveness as part of renewing oneself in preparation for the new year. You can just feel this overall sense of harmony, or at least people trying to achieve it, in holy. Good triumphing over evil, the colors, and relieving yourself of your mistakes both relating to yourself and to others. Moving forward anew. I'd say that's a pretty nice goal for starting a new year. I'd also say this seems like a good place to wrap up for the day. We talked about the history of Nauru's, which actually took us out of India for a while. Then we followed it with the Parsi and later Iranian Zoroastrians, observing how it was preserved in some communities and changed in others. Then we covered Holi, an old Hindu festival with several legends and a strong presence and widespread celebration today. Another day that ended up focused on New Year's, but then again, renewal and rebirth are the core components of New Year's celebrations, aren't they? Oh, and you'll notice I did not mention the phoenix. That's because the phoenix isn't there. Just so you know. Next week, we're going to see what we can find in the United States and what connections we can make. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.